a graduate of Asbury College and Asbury Theological Seminary, Dennis Kinlaw received his Ph.D. from Brandeis University. He was a lifelong student of God's Word and human culture, always looking for evidence of God's activity in human life. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. chapter 5 with me, if you will. I want to begin in the middle of the chapter, so let me just mention, I'm sure that you're familiar with the story. In the beginning, we get the story of the pool of Bethesda, where people came who were sick, and they waited for the moving of the waters so that they could find healing. You will remember there was a man who had been lying there for 38 years, and without, uh, without being able to get help. And Jesus comes along and sees him and says, do you want to get well? And uh, the man says, why, of course. And Jesus said, well, take up your bed and walk. And he created all sorts of problems in, by obeying Christ for Christ. Beginning with verse 16, notice what the, John tells us. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, the time is coming and is now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself but him who sent me. Our subject, as you know, is the matter of an undivided heart. I want to begin to get to that by starting with the concept, the question of what your concept of God really is. Uh, who is the God that you worship? And uh, how do you relate to him? I think that is a special interest at the present time in American evangelicalism because, for one thing, the political campaign. It's amazing to me the atmosphere, the way it has shifted uh, from the day that George Bush used the name of Jesus Christ and all the media panned him, and now God is now a respectable part of political discussion again. But a good question can be asked is, what's meant? when the word God is used in present political discussion. There's another thing that's of interest to me that I may know a little more about than some of you, and that is the ecumenical discussions that are going on today between orthodoxy in the East, Roman Catholicism, and Protestant leadership in the world. It's something that never happened when I was younger. It is a new thing. Let me tell you uh, just a personal bit of experience. I was sitting in a classroom at Princeton in 1954. Yes, 1954, half a century ago. And uh, it was a Syriac class. 
It was a class under Dr. Bruce Metzger, a top flight, wonderful New Testament scholar. One day he came in, and there were nine of us in the class, and he looked at us and said, you know, there's some remarkable things taking place in the world. It may be that the most significant Bible study in the world today is being done in Eastern Europe in Roman Catholic monasteries and seminaries. Now, in 1954, the chasm between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism in my world was incredibly wide, and the one thing that we Protestants knew about the Roman Catholics was that they really didn't pay a great deal of attention to the scripture, that tradition was the controlling factor in their life. So I sort of perked up. He said, uh, it's being done in languages that most of us don't speak, like Bulgarian and Slavic, but uh, it's taking place. Now, that was in 1954. Now, he said, the reason for this is that in 1946, the Pope, in an encyclical, permitted Roman Catholic biblical scholars to go behind the Vulgate and report their findings without making them coincide with the Vulgate. Because up to that point, the Latin translation, which they used in the Roman Catholic Church, the Vulgate, which when it came to the word metanoia on on repentance, it translated it to do penance. And so you had a works righteousness provided in the very biblical text. Now, uh, up to that point, a Roman Catholic scholar, if he studied the original text, anything that he reported, it had to jive with the Vulgate. But in 46, the Pope set them free. And so Dr. Metzger said, it's amazing to the the avid, avidness, the eagerness of Roman Catholic scholars in Eastern Europe to study the scripture. Now that was the background for the 1962 uh, Vatican II, where you will remember they had Protestant observers and they had Eastern Orthodox observers, and they were treated respectfully, and there was this feeling some way or other, we need to get the divisions between us out of the way if possible. And with that came a remarkable amount of ecumenical dialogue, where Church of Scotland Presbyterians sat down with Eastern Orthodox, uh, Finnish Lutherans sat down with Russian Orthodox, uh, American Baptists, uh, or American Reformed people sat down with Roman Catholic scholars. And the interesting thing was, it was not coming out of Geneva, the headquarters of the World Council of Churches, which was a political organization, but it was the scholars getting together to read the biblical text. Now, when you get three people who've got differences and get them to sit down together, and they want to get reconciled, they begin to look, first of all, for what they have in common. And that meant that what they had to do was turn their attention to the first 400 years of the Christian church. Because, you see, it was only in the days of Augustine that the church began to divide. Uh, Somewhere in the beginning of the 5th century, the Western church, the Latin church, and the Eastern church began to separate. Up to that point, they'd been together. Now, when they began to study what the early fathers in those first uh, 400 years between the death of Christ and the resurrection and the early 5th century, in that period, the big question that concerned the church was this, who is Jesus? It wasn't how do I get saved, but it was who is Jesus? Because, you see, the Jews said, you're not one of us because you've got two gods. And they said, oh, no, we've only got one God. And they said, well, uh, who's this Jesus bit? And they said, well, he's the son of God. And they said, see, you've got two gods. And they said, oh, no, we've only got one God. And so they, the Jews said, well, who was running the universe when he was dying on the cross? And they said, well, the father was. They said, see, you've got two gods. And so you're a polytheist. You're a pagan. You're not a Jew. You're not a descendant of Abraham or of Moses. And the pagan said, you're one of us. Because you got more than one God. And they said, oh no, we don't have but one God. And that's the God that came to Abraham and revealed himself to Moses. And they said, well, uh, then who is Jesus? And they said, well, he's God, the Father's Son. And they said, well, see, there you are. You've got a family. You're just like us. 
And they said, no, we're not just like you are. Now, let me make a comment. With Augustine and the Western Church emphasis, you began to get the concept of justification by faith. And you know what question that was the answer to? How do I get my soul saved? Now, who's sinner saved? And you have a thousand years and more in which the basic theology has the human ego center stage. Now, that's what you've got in American evangelicalism in large measure today. Because the question is, how do I get saved? In the first 400 years, the question wasn't, how do I get saved? The question was, who is this Jesus? And let me say, that creates a radically different atmosphere it gives you a radically different set of questions, and it gives you a radically different set of answers. And so the end result is that today, most of the preaching that we get today is really in America on Christ died to save us from the consequences of sin. He's going to get me past the judgment, and he gives me a ticket so I don't have to go to hell. And I get saved. You notice the center? Now, do you know what the essence of sin biblically is? It's self-centeredness. And there's incredibly little preaching in this country today on the fact that Christ died not just to save me from the penalty of my sins, the consequences of it. The angel told Joseph, his name shall be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. But that's not the thing that is uppermost in the preaching today. And so... Uh, it's a different context. Now, there's something else that's very interesting. There's very little about justification by faith in the first 400 years of the church. Because what they were after was not a legal pass, but it was to you to get to the place where you could enter into the very living fellowship of the living God, the triune Godhead. You could enter into that, and you could know spiritual union with God fellowship with him. And it, it was a very different thing. Now, the end result of this ecumenical dialogue is that there has probably been more work theologically done on the doctrine of the Trinity in the last 60 years than in any period in human history since Augustine. And uh, there's a lot to be learned from it. A key factor in it was Karl Barth back in the 30s, and uh, then uh, he tried to get Christ at the center of things, and when you get Christ at the center of the things, you've, uh, you've either got to make Christ God alone, or you've got to go to the doctrine of the Trinity. And so, successors began to pay more attention to it. Now, when I was growing up, no Protestant thought much about the Trinity. It was not a part of our discussion. Well, we were doing good to believe in one God. This emphasis started, and it has kept going. Now, let me tell you how significant it, it is, or what is significant to me. One of the key leaders in all of this discussion is a Church of Scotland Presbyterian by the name of Thomas Torrance. Tom Torrance was uh, a pastor, a chaplain in the Second World War. He became professor of church history at Edinburgh, and then he became professor of dogmatics and taught systematic theology at Edinburgh, which is the central theological school for the Church of Scotland. He edited the works of John Calvin, one of the authorities in the world on Calvin. When Princeton wanted Mr. Presbyterian, they sent to Scotland to get Tom Torrance. But when Tom Torrance got into these ecumenical discussions, he knew that he, to be honest, had to go back and read the early fathers. Now, in most of the church history courses, in most of our seminaries, over the last thousand years, we've done good to get back to Augustine. And he's been sort of a major figure. Very little emphasis on the early church fathers. So old Tom Torrance began reading in the original Greek, uh, Athanasius, and the rest of these, uh, the Gregories, Basil, and the others in the Eastern Church. I have a son-in-law who did uh, his seminary training at Edinburgh. And one day he went to Greyfriars uh, Church of Scotland, and he found himself sitting unexpectedly, he didn't know it at first, in uh, Tom Torrance's pew. 
And Tom was not there that day. And uh, when they read the scripture lesson, he reached for the Bible in the pew, and there were four. One of them was Latin, one of them was Hebrew, one of them was Greek, and one of them was German. That's a different world from ours, you know. But he went back and read all these in the original. And as he read them, he began digesting it and began lecturing on it, on what he was finding. And he published a book called The, The Trinitarian Faith, which is simply a distillation of the early church fathers on the Christian faith as they understood it in those first four centuries. And the interesting thing is that his thinking began to change. In 1994, he must be about 86 to 88 now, still living, but uh, in 1994, he published a book called The Mediation of Christ. Now listen to this. In which he said, you know, to be ordained in the Presbyterian Church until relatively recently, you had to affirm that the doctrine found in the Westminster Confession was the doctrine found in the New Testament. It's not you read the New Testament and you correct the Westminster Confession with it, but you read the Westminster Confession and that tells you what the New Testament said. That was Presbyterianism. Tom Torrance, Mr. Presbyterian, said, you know, it's very interesting. I've reached the place where I've decided that the God assumed in the Westminster Confession is a God who is a theological and philosophical abstraction that never existed. I found a phrase in his, in his writings that, that I noticed in Coffee. And then I found a little book, and the phrase was, Behind the Back of Jesus or behind Jesus. I found a lecture which he gave at Princeton on preaching the gospel. Well, interestingly enough, he dedicated the book to Billy Graham. But uh, in it, he told a story from his personal life. When he was a chaplain in the Second World War, he had a 19-year-old boy dying on his hands on the battlefield. He said, I knew he had only a few minutes, and he knew he had only a few minutes. And he said the boy was terror-stricken. In desperation and in panic, the boy looked up at Chapman and said, Padre, is God like Jesus? And Tom said, I found myself saying, Son, there is no God behind the back of Jesus that you have to worry about. When you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. Now, I understood why that phrase kept occurring in these sophisticated arguments in his theological work. But you see, he had seen it working with his conviction that when you meet Jesus Christ, you've met God. So that's the kind of thing that's going on in certain theological circles in the world today. Not much known about it. It has not hit the public press too much, but it is there. Now, uh, one of the things that interests me to, to go along with this is the, this openness of God question that came up this afternoon. And you will find uh, Clark Pennock in the middle of it uh, started out a good solid Calvinist and now he calls himself an Arminian and uh, he and a group of others have uh, written a fairly large amount on this question of the openness of God challenging that view of sovereignty where God is so sovereign, he knows everything, and therefore everything is predetermined. The foreknowledge does not necessarily mean predetermination. When I was a kid, I lived in a house that had a tin roof, you know, with a comb like that. When I got big enough that I could throw a ball, I wanted to know if I could throw it over the top. And I found, finally, I got to the place where I could throw it and it would go over. You know, when it went over the comb, I never had a question in the world about where it was going. And I wasn't the one that made it go there. In fact, I'd run around the house and run catch it. And that, I thought I was quite, a, quite an accomplished ball player when I could do that. But observation, you can observe something and know exactly what's going to take place. And you not have anything to do with producing you will find that happening with your children sometimes. And God sees it happening with his children. But he's not the one who determines every detail. Well, that question is a hot one right now in some circles. I stood the other day with a, a layman who said, told me, he said, 
his college, Christian college, and his seminary. And a good bit of his denomination is torn by this question now, and they're beginning to call uh, the ones who believe in the openness of God heretics. But, you see, what they're after is they have trouble believing in a God who picked some people to be saved and picked some people to be damned, and he picked some to be damned for his own glory. We, Paul and I have a friend who worked with us on a layman, and he just moved to another city, and he's looked for a church where he could hear the word of God. And he goes to his own denomination, and it's sterile, and so he looks around and he finds a Presbyterian PCA church and goes, and they sing great hymns and they preach the word, but they said, we'd like for you to join the church. And they said, what do I have to do? Well, you've got to subscribe to the, to the Westminster Confession. And he finally looked at the pastor and said, you and I don't worship the same God. I don't know where I'll go, but I don't worship a God. I can't worship a God who picks some people out to be damned, this kind of thing. So it's a current, the question hasn't gone away. So it's an item of interest. Now, in connection with all of that, there are two comments I'd like to make for quotation. In the middle of the last century, the Archbishop of Canterbury was a man by the name of William Temple. And uh, one day in his writings, he wrote a line I've never forgotten. He said, if your concept of God is wrong, the more religion you get, the more dangerous you are to yourself and to others. Now, that's a remarkably perceptive comment, and I think it's true. You look at the tragedy of religious history in the world and the destruction that it has produced, and what you have is a God who tolerates that kind of stuff. But anyway, if your concept of God is wrong, the more religion you get, the more dangerous you are to yourself and to others. Now, uh, there's a New Testament scholar in England now by the name of, uh, an Anglican by the name of N.T. Wright. Uh, N.T. Wright for nine years was a chaplain of one of the colleges at Oxford. And so every fall when the new students enrolled, he would uh, interview every new student. And he found uh, all sorts of people in that uh, category, you know, as new students. And as he sat with these new students, some of them would be very sort of uncomfortable and get to the end of the interview and the kid would look up and say, well, Chaplain, you probably won't see a great deal of me because I just happen to be an atheist. And N.T. Wright said, I found the answer to that one. He said, uh, I said, oh, that's very interesting. Which God is it you don't believe in? And he said the kid had stumbled a little and try to explain the God he didn't believe in. And N.T. Wright would then look at the kid and say, you know, it's amazing how much you and I have in common. I don't believe in that God either. Now, I think that's a classical response to a very legitimate and a very important question. In all of the discussion today about God, the question is, who is the God that's being talked about and he's either God of truth that Bill was talking about today, the God who is real, who's there, who exists, who is the only God that exists. And uh, you and I, if our perception of him is wrong, our lives will be wrong and our ministry will be wrong. So uh, I think it's safe to raise the question for you and for me as to who is the God that we worship and who is the God we want to relate to and who is the God who we want to love with all of our hearts mind, soul, and strength. Now, there's a Jew in the last century who helped us, as far as I'm concerned. He was a Jewish philosopher from Poland who went to Israel before the state of Israel was established, and uh, he uh, taught high school all the rest of his life. And one of the reasons he taught in high school was because he didn't fit the patterns for the intellectuals in Israel, and so uh, they wouldn't give him a job in uh, Hebrew University, but he wrote a seven-volume history of the religion of Israel in Israeli Hebrew. The University of Chicago had it uh, uh, reduced and translated one volume, put into one volume and published. <laughs> and uh, remarkable, remarkable work. One of the most helpful things that I that I ever read. Not on all of his stuff. I didn't go along with it all, but his basic concept was this. 
You can take all the religions of the world and put them into two buckets. All the religions in the world you can stick in one of two buckets. Now, the one bucket is the big one. And it's got those religions in it where nature is what is ultimate. And what you end up with is either polytheism where the, the, the sky is a god and the earth is a goddess and where in Egypt the river Nile is a god and the sun and the moon, the stars and the forces of nature, the ocean, these are gods, but all of them are nature and all of them are impersonal. Now that we may personify them and give them personal names, but they're, they're natural forces that are looked upon as divine. You found that in Canaan and all around the Mediterranean. In India, they said, well, everything is God. The universe is divine. And so you have pantheism. And so those nature religions you can dump into one bucket. Now he said in the other buckets you can put there three. Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. Now the reason they go together is because they all believe in one God. The worshiper of Allah says, I believe in one God. I'm a monotheist. The Jewish rabbi says, I believe in one God. Joe Lieberman, I'm a monotheist. And the Christian says, I'm a monotheist too. I believe in one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Or Paul says there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. One God. But now, uh, when you come to that, uh, we have... Uh, a bit of a, a problem here. And uh, Jesus is the one who precipitates it. Because you get this passage that we read where he finds on the Sabbath day he passes a man lying and he says, do you want to get well? I said, yes. Well, he said, take up your bed and walk. Now, it just happened to be, or did it just happen to be? The Sabbath. And so the man takes his bed up and begins to walk and the temple representatives there had a, had got into a frenzy over that. They got him very quickly and said, you're breaking the law. Why are you breaking the law? Because, you see, you're not supposed to carry a load on the Sabbath. I was fascinated when I read that uh, when Joe Lieberman uh, does any political activities on Saturday, he has to have a man to go with him to switch the lights on and off for him because he's not free to do that. Now, you can smile at that, but I had a friend at Brandeis who was a rabbinical student, now teaches at Brandeis University. She smoked a pack of cigarettes every day except Saturday. I said, don't you smoke on Saturday? See? He said, oh, no. I said, why don't you smoke on Saturday? You think it's a sin? He said, oh, no, if it were a sin, I wouldn't smoke the other six days. Well, why don't you smoke on Saturday? Well, he said... It's against the law to carry a burden on the Sabbath, and I haven't learned how to smoke one without carrying it. Now, that's, that's, that's how rigid the law was. And here's the man who picks up his mat on the Sabbath. And so, they say, why are you doing this? He said, the fellow who healed me, made me well, told me to do it. They said, well, who's he? That got him to Jesus. And when they pushed Jesus on this for breaking the law... He looked at him and listened to this. You know, I ran over this for years without feeling the impact of it. You know, it's so easy to miss this. The, the scriptures are so terse, so succinct, you know. That you but he looked at him and said, my father worked. And I worked too. Now, I didn't understand that for a long time. But you know what he was saying to him? It's the Sabbath. My father works on the Sabbath. Do you know what God does on the Sabbath? He makes rain. It rains on Saturday as well as on Monday. And so God's the one who provides it, so he works. Babies get born on the Sabbath. And when they get born, they're a work of the Father. And so Jesus says, my Father works. And as my Father works, I work too. Now you see, he's making himself superior to the law. And he's putting himself on a par with God. And the Jews didn't miss that. They said, you are a blasphemer. And blasphemers have to be killed. And the cross was inevitable, inexorable. 
Now, through the rest of the book of John, you get more development of this, where that association, relationship between Jesus and the Father gets sharper. You'll remember that in the upper room, uh, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. I'm the gatekeeper on him. And Philip said, Lord, if you just show us the Father, that would satisfy us. Jesus said, I've been with you all for three years now, and you haven't seen me? When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When you know me, you know the Father. I and the Father are one. Now, he said that in the privacy of the upper room, but can you imagine what the temple authorities would have done with that? And you will remember through that night, he kept saying, the Father dwells in me and I dwell in him, and the two of us are one. Then you will remember after the resurrection, when the other disciples had seen him and Thomas had not, you will remember that Thomas said, I'm not going to believe until I don't have an option. <laughs> he said, uh, I'm not going to believe until I, I can feel him, the scars in his hand. And so Jesus appeared and said, here they are, Tom. And Tom cried out, my Lord and my God. Now, Paul picked that up. And you know, it's a far greater argument biblically than I thought it was for a while. Do you remember this passage in Philippians 2? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not a thing to be seized, grasped, to be equal with God, but emptied himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, you remember? Then he says, Wherefore God hath highly exalted him. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Now, if you'll go back and read Isaiah 43 and Isaiah 45, you'll find that in Isaiah 43 and Isaiah 45, this name above all names, the name at which every knee bows, in 43, the name and every knee bowing in 45, in those passages, the passage is about the God of Israel. It is about Yahweh, Jehovah. It is about the God of Sinai. And so Paul is saying about Jesus, he is equating him with the God who spoke the law on Sinai. Now, can you imagine what a Jew would do with that? That just, you know, shattered all of his thinking. But you get that developed so that there is... There's this question. Uh, then what do you do about it? Now slowly, and we don't have time to go into all that, but that's the kind of thinking and data that went into the church beginning to say, we believe in the God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the doctrine of the Trinity was developed. And uh, why did they develop? They didn't have any option. You don't have any option. You just have to say this is the way to explain it. No. Understand all the fullness of it? No. But there's no way to handle it except to concede that there's one God. But in that one God, there are three persons. Fascinating to me because immediately you've got a different concept of God from the God who is one, who sits alone, transcendent, majestic, sovereign, characterized by power, and then you move to a God whose Father, Son, and Spirit. You've got a very different ambience here. You pick out the word you want to, atmosphere. You pick out the word you want to use to cover it. But uh, we may not understand it all, but brother, you come out with an incredibly richer concept of the God that you know, that can be known, and that wants to know you, and that you worship. Now, the conclusion of the discussion in the early church was, as Bill mentioned this afternoon, the Council of Nicaea, where it is spelled out that we believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, there's an interesting thing. In the early church, in those first four centuries, nobody was ever asked if he believed in God. Did you know what he was asked? When he was being baptized or when he was being catechized? The question was, do you believe in God the Father? And you get it illustrated in the Apostles' Creed. You know how many hundreds of times in my life I recited, maybe thousands of times, the Apostles' Creed? 
Never thought about it. Do you notice what the first thing is it says about God? I believe in God. And you know what's the second thing? The Almighty is secondary. And the Father is primary. Now let me say, you got to change your concept of the sovereign when the sovereign is your father. If you don't believe in the triune Godhead, one God, one being, in three persons, then you're going to have to go to the way of that single monadic, you know, univocal being up there and sovereign. And the inevitable result will be you're dealing with a ruler who's in control, sovereignly in control, instead of your father. Now, Christians believe he's sovereignly in control, but the one who's in control is a father, first of all and always. Now, you see, I miss this. I'd hate to tell you how old I was before it dawned on me that Adam and Eve didn't have the first family. Because, you see, in the bosom of eternity, when there was nobody but God, before he created anything, when one member of the Holy Trinity wakes up in the morning, he didn't look up and say, Hello, God, or morning, Lord. But he said, Father. And the other responded, Son. Because, you see, the Son is the eternal Son, and the Father is the eternal Father. Now, it's amazing how much of this I missed. You get to the book of 1 Corinthians, and when you come to that resurrection passage, you find that we are told that ultimately every enemy will be destroyed. Every opponent of Christ will be brought to heel and will be under his feet. He will reign, and when he reigns and every knee confesses that he's Christ, Lord to the glory of God the Father, then you know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15? He will render up, the Son will render up the kingdom to the Father from whence it came. So, what you've got in this concept of God is, the beginning is Father, and the last word is, He's Father. And when you get to the book of Revelation, that Father is sitting on the throne, and the Son is standing in the midst of the throne, and do you know what they're there for? The marriage supper of the Lamb. And you know, it's an interesting kingdom when you're the bride of the sovereign. Now, what all I want to say is, you're beginning to get a different understanding of God. Now, what difference does it make? Let me say, it's interesting that Augustine went for the unity of God. And when he went for the unity of God, and in the morning I'll try to explain biblically how that came about through Exodus 3. The I am passage. But uh, when he went for the oneness of God, he was doing it because that gave him something to talk with the Greek philosophers about. Because the Greek philosophers wanted to put everything together and have it all mesh in as one. And so he said, there's one God. And so what you get, the dominant emphasis through the Middle Ages and into our own century is on the sovereignty of God. And so, what you have is this transcendent one. He transcends nature. He's not a part of nature. Now, this is all right. This is correct. But if this is all that you see, then what a different picture you get in your mind and in your heart. He's transcendent, and therefore, there's a great chasm between us and him, and he's distant. And, you know, the end result was it was Wesley who talked about assurance, not the Calvin. Wesley talked about the witness of the Spirit. People who believed in predestination today, how can you ever know whether you're chosen or not? Uh, you see, it's a little different context. The Father's not going to leave you in uncertainty about his affection and his love. A sovereign is another matter. Now, so he's transcendent, distant, remote, alone, solitary. Just get a Muslim and let him talk about Allah for him. And he's that. And uh, he reigns without rival or competitor. He is not accountable to anyone because he is alone. 
Therefore, he can be capricious. Who is there to check him? Why shouldn't he? And power is the supreme characteristic. And what does he want out of you and me? Obedience. Because, you see, the beauty of a sovereign is to see that the subjects obey the law. So that whenever a sovereign meets his subject, you always have a third element present. When a sovereign meets his subject, when the policeman stops you on the highway, there are three factors. You, the policeman, and the law book. Now, you cannot get away from that with the sovereign. And what does the sovereign want? He wants you to obey the law. Exactly. But most of all, externally. Do you know you can hate the sovereign and be a good subject as long as you obey the law? You can hate your neighbor as long as you don't kill him. You're okay with the law. The inside doesn't matter when it comes to the sovereign and the subject. But when it comes to a father, what does a father want? Now, in the beginning, when the kid's a child, he imposes on him a value system. But the day comes when the father says, that's not, that doesn't do it. What I want is for that son or that daughter to come to the place where he or she chooses to do what's right not because he or she has to, but because he or she has decided to adopt that standard, that code, for himself or for herself. I can remember, I can take you to the spot on the floor in the home we lived in at that time, when uh, my son and I were at it. And I was trying to get him get in his place and do what he ought to do. Bill Coker is a good friend of mine. So one day he looked at that son and said, Kenlaw, you are a mess. So my son, the doctor told me, said, when you see Dr. Coker, please thank him. <laughs> you see, that's what you're after, the internalization. But that day as I stood in front of him, you know, ready to exercise my authority, it was an inner voice that spoke and said, if you win this one, you've lost him and you've lost him forever. And for the first time, back then. Now you've got two very different psychological concepts that time. And so you see what you're after is not a performance, but you're after an internalization of the And so the Old Testament tells us about the day when the Spirit will be given and the law will be written within our hearts. And it'll come from the inside out. Now you see I find the father analogy much more compatible with the holiness message than the sovereign. Because you see, in the sovereign when what you're after is, uh, you know, clearance before the law. And what you're concerned about is your status. You know, just as if you had never sinned. But you see, in the family analogy, what you're after is for the next generation, to adopt the truth that has been that has been what has made the person the, the generation before it acceptable to God and know something of righteousness and truth and so forth. So it's an internal. Now, he was a sovereign. The end of history is what? It's a judgment day. Now, uh, if you've got a God who is three persons in one being, it's very different. Because God himself is different. Instead of being one who sits alone on his throne, you've got three who live in interrelationships with each other. Now, uh, do you know where the word person came into the English language? I missed this for a long time. But the per word person came into the English language as a result of the discussions in the second, third, and fourth century on who Jesus was. So it is a Trinitarian word. You wouldn't have person, personality, personhood if it weren't for the question of who Jesus was. The question those early Christians fought with as to who Jesus was. Now, uh, uh, what you have is, and I'm convinced, you see, who was the first person? It wasn't Adam and Eve. The first person 
where the first and second and third person of the blessed Trinity. Now, do you want to know what a person is supposed to be? Don't look at one of us. We're wrecked automobiles. You don't go to the junkyard to find out what a what a Cadillac supposed to look like. You go to the the General Motors place to see one that's intact. But you see, when you meet a human being, a fallen human being, you don't have a you don't have a person the way he's supposed to. You want to know what a person is supposed to be like? Jesus is the example. And we are made in his image, and the redemption of Christ is to restore us to that image. The social sciences don't know anything about that. And so psychology and the psychoanalysts and the rest of them, they study us the way we are, and they try to decide from the junkyard what an automobile is. And little wonder, it's not a very pleasant story. But I want to say, when God became one of us, I love this. In the first four centuries of the church, you know how they talked about the birth of Christ? They said he's the second Adam, the last Adam. And he didn't start where Adam started. He started where Adam finished and reversed the process. And if you want to know what we're to be, look at Jesus. And you see, a true, normal, human person. Now that's the kind of stuff that you get out of this, this different concept of God. And from the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, but let me mention, now this, this, this may seem a little subtle to some. Uh, it was for me for a while, but I've lived with it long enough that it's becoming extremely precious. Uh, this probably most of you have already said. You see, when you get to the doctrine of the Trinity, love becomes what God is instead of something he does. You see, Allah loves the people that obey him and please It's something he does. You see, to love, you have to have an object. So before there was any creation, Allah wasn't love. He didn't have anything to love except himself, and self-love is not true love. And that same thing is true of the rabbinic God. You know, monotheism of Israel. Not, not that of Christ, but of the people who crucified. They believe in one God. And he was one alone. And before the creation, he couldn't love. He couldn't be loved because there was nothing to love except himself. Alone. But you see, with the doctrine of the Trinity, you've got three persons. And the Father loves the Son and gives life to him. The Son loves the Father and gives it back to the Father. The Father and the Son love each other and love needs to be... You know, a thing I notice is that if you get two people to live together and love each other, you have to take artificial means to keep them from having babies. There's just something about it that wants some another object to love. There's another orientedness about it, and so the Holy Spirit, the Spirit proceeds from the Father. We say in the West the Son, but he says proceeds from the Father, so the Son is begotten of the Father, the Father gives him life, and the Spirit gets his life as he proceeds from the Father. And they live in a self-sacrificing love with each other. And so the Father says, we've got a world down there that's lost. You can't solve a problem where it isn't. So God in heaven couldn't solve the problem. You, see. you have to solve a problem where it is. So the father said, one of us has got to become one of them. And the son said, I'll go. And the father said, I'll send And do you know, in the Gospel of John, the word send is used 40 times. And most poignant words from the lips of Jesus about his relationship to his father, the Greek is, Paul, Kempsos me pater, the sending me father. 
Now, who is the father of Jesus? Jesus? Jesus said, he's the sending me father. And the son said, that's his will. I don't want to do my own will. I want to do the will of my father. And the spirit, father and the son give the spirit to us, and so forth. But you see, God, so John could say, our God is love because that's the way they relate to each other. But now let me share one more. So what, well, before I leave that, what does he want me to do? You want me to get to the place where I can live in that kind of atmosphere. And what is it? It's another oriented love where you care more about the other person than you do yourself. There are two Greek words here for love. One of them is the word eros, and we have turned that into erotic. But if you read Plato and Aristotle, you'll find that they use it not just not just about human sexuality. You use it for other, it's the most common word used for love. And what is it? You love something because it can make your life richer. And that's what I experienced with Elton. I said, will you marry me? I'm a lot happier when I'm with you than I'm not with you. If I could have you all the time, man, how nice that would be. So I love you. Will you marry me? What I meant was I love me. And I'd like for you to marry me so I can be happy. That's error. But do you know what agape is, the New Testament word? It's where you don't love somebody else because that person can do something for you. You love that person because you can do something for that person. You love the other person because you can make that other person's life better, richer. It is the exact reverse. And so do you know what Aristotle said? God doesn't love. Because if God loved, that means he wasn't perfect. And so he's perfect, so he can't, he, he can't love. Love is a sign that your life could be richer than it is, according to Eros, which is here according to Agape. God can love because he can make your life richer. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, but I'm a lot more comfortable with that kind of God than I am with that guy sitting on the throne dictating, ruling, you see. Now, he sits on the throne, and he rules, but who is he? He is love, Father, Son, and Spirit, and that kind of thing. Now, that kind of God fits Wesley's concept of perfect love and Christian perfection infinitely better, doesn't it? So one of the things that fascinates me is that we may be moving into a period when the best theologians in the world are proposing a theological stance that's far more compatible to our heritage than anything that's been proposed in 1,500 years. Now, I'm dreaming. The wish may be the father of the thought, but as I read them, there's a compatibility, you see, because of that emphasis upon the Trinity. But hold on. You see, God is, in these three persons, a communion of holy love. Now, he's a communion. Uh, language fails us here, as well as our understanding. In the early church, in those first 300 years, some of the writers said that when we come to this, we ought to be seraphim with six wings, two to cover our faces and two to cover our feet, in adoration and praise, because the God that we worship is beyond our comprehension. So when I come to this, I feel feel the point, you see, of that because we're dealing with incredible mystery, you see. Now he is, God is, in these three persons, a communion of holy love. Now what about the communion? John said this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, you know, that's sort of a enigmatic uh, proposition, isn't it? In the beginning was the Word. 
What is a word? It's a puff of air. In the beginning was that puff of air, word. And the word was with God, the more, and the word was God. Now, uh, you know, a word is a means of communication. It is a relational matter, because that's the way you relate to somebody else. Uh, it's interesting how powerful words are. They can uh, they can get you in trouble. Now you see, when you've got a word, what you've got is a speaker and a hearer, one spoken to, and a word. And you've got communication, communion. Now, you know, I always read John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I thought it meant that when God created the world, the Son was his means of speaking to us. He was the law God. And it's through the Son that God spoke to us. But that's not what the text says. You know what the text says? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him. So it was the word of God which created everything. So there was a word operating before there was a creation. So did you know God talks to himself? At least they talk to each other. They commune with each other. He is a speaking God. I don't know about you. But do you know what the Old Testament says is a major difference between the true God and idols? Idols can't speak. They don't talk. <laughs> Bill could tell you about this, but you go back into some of that Mediterranean world and they had guys who, who hide in the images and speak, you know. But they were not the, not the God speaking. But the Hebrews said, our God speaks. And he speaks to you and he speaks to me. I had, we, Elsie and I had lunch on Sunday with a couple from World Gospel Mission. And she said her mother wanted her to be a beautician. And she said, deep in my spirit, there was something that said I'm made for something bigger than that. And she had found Christ. She was reading the Old Testament. She ran across the word nurse. She said, I would have sworn it was in capital letters. But she said, when I went and looked, went back and looked at it, it was in small letters. But it was in capital letters when it thundered me. And an inner voice said, you are to be a nurse. I got a 20-year-old grandson. He went to Kenya. The Swiss mission out there has a helicopter. So she gets in that helicopter with her stuff, and she said, go with me. And so they go out in the bush, and natives hear the helicopter and see it, and they know the doctor, the nurses come. So all the mothers bring their babies, and all the sick people come. And my grandson, who never been in anything like this before, she said, I need help. So he had to climb in a window. There was so many jammed around to get to her. And she said, here, take this syringe inoculate that baby. So before he was through, he vaccinated or inoculated 50 babies. And uh, she is a magnificent human being. But you know where it all started? She said, he spoke to me and he said, you're being nervous. Now, you know some people smile at that. But if you've ever heard it before, one of the most significant persons I ever met said to me, Ken Law, I don't think it ever happened to me three times, but I think I heard a voice. Uh, now, I've never heard a voice. You know, that you hear with this? But I've heard a voice. And it's the kind of voice that you don't have any options, Bill. <laughs> when it speaks, you know. He's a speaking God. And why? Because the three persons of the Trinity speak to each other. Eternal conversation. And do you know what he said? Would you like to join that conversation? 
I believe, that's the reason I believe in holiness. Because you see, he's the holy one. And if you're going to join in that conversation, you need to be clean and holy. Because that's where you're headed. You're headed. Well, one other word about uh, words and language. You know, that is, a, that is a human characteristic. Animals don't have words. Now, they may have signs that they make to communicate with each other, but they don't have words. But to be a human means that you can speak, you can hear, and you can communicate verbally. You know how much richer your life is because of that? I'll have to tell you, I started to tell Mel the story, but uh, we've got five kids, and they're all married, and we've got 16 grandchildren, and now the great-grandchildren are coming along, and we've got, first of all, we had four little girls, and then a boy came, and and when Mike was born, my daughter, who's a grandmother, called and said, uh, she called me Papa, she said, Papa, boy is here. I said, well, any problem? Well, she said a momentary. Had very broad shoulders, so there was a glitch in his birth. Then bang, he appeared, and he started swallowing. And she said, you know, his mother began to talk to him. And when he heard her voice, he quit crying. Because he knew he was not in an alien world. He was in a friendly world. Because of that boy, my daughter said, of course she'd been talking to him for six months, so he knew. And then she said to me, you know, every family has its own human. So my daughter said, and Papa, guess what his first two words were? I said, please tell me. Oh, she said very clearly, he said, John Wesley and the Holy Trinity. But you know, I'm glad we've got a God who can say, I love you. I'm glad we've got a God who can say, you're my child. I'm glad we've got a God who can say, I heard with you. And that, that, that's a reflection of the doctrine of the Trinity. That's a reflection of the biblical God. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I have to tell you one story. I was in a conference in Los Angeles. And uh, one of the other speakers was a professor from Notre Dame, and the other one was uh, a lady from uh, Asia. She was uh, came from a uh, Muslim background, and her husband was uh, her former husband because he had divorced her. Her former husband had been the secretary, one of the secretaries in the cabinet of the country that they lived in. And she was a devout Muslim, very prominent lady, and very brilliant lady. And she told about how she started a friendship with two Baptist missionaries. And these Baptist missionaries ultimately gave her a New Testament. And she said, I started reading, and she said, it stirred something in me. And she said, I watched those Baptist missionaries, and they knew something I didn't know. And she said, uh, I realized they knew God, and I didn't know God. And she said, uh, I wanted to. And so she said, I thought I would pray, but how could I pray? She said, I could not afford to pray the Lord's Prayer because of the first three words. Because you said, you see, as a Muslim, I knew that if I were to call Allah Father, I would be blasphemed. Because in Islamic thought, the Father is a figure that applies to us, not to God. He's the sovereign. And so you get these, this titular sure that speaks of his kingship, his lordship, and all the rest of it. And she said, I knew that if I said, our father, he'd strike me dead. And she said, so I sweated. Finally, she said, I got hungry. That I looked up, and I said, father, 
And then she said, I fell prostrate on the floor in absolute terror. And she said, nothing happened. And then she said, I heard a quiet voice. And the boy said, daughter. And we're the only people in the world who know that kind of thing. We're the only people in the world. We ought to tell the world about what God is like. And that's our business. The thing I want to get at is, if we get a true concept of the triune Godhead, one being, three persons, it will change our understanding of what a person is. It will change our understanding of what a human being is. Because, you see, one of those persons became one of us. It will not only change our understanding of God, but it will change our understanding of us, of what a person is, and it will change our understanding of what salvation is. Because it's a different thing. It's a different world. 